in terms of people of color, we're always being judged, we're always being stereotyped. Yeah, you have enough to deal with already. Yeah, and we really do not want another thing to be added to our list of oppressions that mm-hmm. people will use against us. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes, as will come up again and again on this show. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, the day it comes out, tomorrow will be Festivus. It's a totally made-up holiday, even more so than all the others, because it originated from an episode of Seinfeld, but it's my favorite holiday. It's a secular celebration that's a playful alternative to the commercialization of Christmas. A Festivus for the rest of us is the perfect holiday for the chronically ill and or depressed. Instead of a Christmas tree, you get an unadorned aluminum pole and carry out rituals such as the airing of grievances and feats of strength. The holiday season is full of feats of strength, especially for those of us that live with chronic health conditions. Dealing with stressful family situations, strained finances, travel logistics, enforced merriment, shortened days, and shitty weather. With chronic illness, these things are all 10 times harder, so don't feel bad if you're not feeling so merry and bright this season. It's no wonder that so many people experience depression at this time of year. Whether it's an exacerbation of year-round clinical depression or something seasonal, it can really make the holidays difficult. And so, I thought it would be most appropriate to make this week's episode a festive holiday one about depression. I talked to Dior Vargas, Latina feminist mental health activist, about her experiences with depression, suicide rates, and her People of Color with Mental Illness photo project. We talk about getting help, media representation, and how she got invited to the White House. We'll be talking about some touchy issues like taking medication, suicide, and racism. If these topics are triggering for you, you're currently in crisis or know someone who is, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or find other more specific mental health resources linked to in the show notes. I've also included other resources about the different types of depressive disorders, different types of antidepressants, different types of therapy, and how to go about finding a therapist that's right for you. There are also some links to the work of Jennifer Michael Hecht, who has experienced suicidal ideation herself, lost friends to suicide, and since written extensively on the topic. Her recent episode of On Being is one of my favorites of all time, and in it she reads her poem, No Hemlock Rock, which ends, Stay. Thank you for staying. Please stay. You are my hero for staying. I know about it, and I am grateful you stay. Eat a donut. Rhyme opus with lotus. Rope is bogus. Psychosis. Stay. 
Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. Try not to kill yourself. I won't either. It's a common misconception that suicide rates spike around the holidays. Those rates are actually highest in the late spring and early summer. But like I talked about before, depression definitely intensifies around the holidays for many people. In this episode, we talk about suicide rates as they break out among ethnic and age groups, but there are other groups with alarmingly high rates of suicide attempts and completions. For example, 41% of transgender and gender nonconforming people have attempted suicide, compared to a national average of just 4.6%, and I hope to devote a whole episode to this in the near future. This Festivus, I'll start the airing of my grievances with something I often hear when people talk about mental illness. They say something to the effect of, what if people treated physical illness like they do mental illness? The implication being that the two are somehow regarded differently by people. That physical illness is taken more seriously, free from stigma, judgment, and ableism. And while that may be true for acute illnesses like the flu or even something like cancer, Invisible illnesses and chronic illnesses are actually treated in the exact same way. People don't take them seriously. People don't believe they exist. People judge them harshly, stigmatize them, and offer ridiculous, insensitive, and ineffectual cures that are often quite offensive. Mental illness and physical illness happen in the same body, and it's kind of silly to me that we make such a big deal about there being a big difference between them at all. I see very little difference and think they should both be taken seriously and that they both need better treatments and more research. If nothing else, I never want to stand on top of one group while trying to make a point for another. Illness, be it mental or physical, sucks, and we should all be taking them a lot more seriously. The other grievance that I'll air is about how frustrating it is to me that so many people are so vehemently anti-medication. If you feel it just isn't for you, that is totally fine. But I hear a lot of people discouraging others from taking it and talking very negatively about the risks of medications and how big pharma is just inventing reasons to line their pockets and pour pills down our throats. And while some of that may be true, it always makes me so mad. It makes me mad because myself, Many people I love and millions of others get their lives saved on a daily basis by pharmaceuticals. Whether it's preventing a medical condition from killing you outright or taming your depression enough so that you don't want to kill yourself, medication is a very important part of managing many medical conditions. It's really very alienating and further stigmatizing to get the anti-pharma rhetoric shoved in our faces so often. Therapy is also super important. But there is a biological basis to depression that we can't necessarily think or talk our way out of, though many will try to convince you otherwise. It's because of this stigma that most people never even seek treatment at all for depressive disorders. As Dior points out in the interview, a lot of people are resistant to the idea of taking medication to treat their depression, and often economic issues get in the way of getting treatment. It's not for everyone, and not everyone has access to adequate and ongoing mental health treatment. But for many people, antidepressants are an essential part of their existence. 
I can recommend Cara Santamaria's episode of the podcast, The Dark Place, if you want to get a better understanding of the chemical side of depression, why some people, including herself, were so resistant to getting help, and what therapy and the right medication has done for her. Antidepressants are super important, and I am a big fan of their work, but I want to be real here. People don't talk about how hard it can be to find the right medication, and I'm not going to act like it isn't bananas that some antidepressants, for some people, may actually make them want to kill themselves. Not talking about that part isn't particularly helpful for anyone. The black box warning on antidepressants about the increased risk of suicide in adolescents and young adults is some scary shit. But as with any medication, we weigh the risks and benefits of treatment. I've had a pretty hard time with antidepressants myself. I've lived the nightmare of feeling like I've lost total control over my brain with multiple drugs and not just antidepressants. Unfortunately, until we have a non-invasive test that's able to measure what's going on in our brains neurotransmitter-wise and what kind of treatment or combination of treatments might be the most effective, trial and error is all we have. I'm not telling you this stuff to freak you out or warn you away from taking antidepressants if you need them. I'm telling you this so that you know you're not alone or extra broken if you've had a hard time with this, so that you know that struggling with medication is actually totally normal and so that you know that there is at least a little hope. After some pretty terrible experiences with multiple SSRIs, which are the most common type of antidepressant, I thought antidepressants just weren't for me. Then a doctor put me on a very low dose of an antidepressant in a different class to treat migraines. It didn't really do much for the headaches, but after an adjustment period, I suddenly, finally understood what antidepressants were supposed to do. I've been so much better able to keep my head above water, and when I do get upset, those waters aren't quite so deep. My emotions aren't blunted, I'm not a different person, I'm still able to exist joy and sorrow and everything in between, and feel like I've actually been much better equipped to deal with life and be able to grow into myself. But my work in this area is not done. I recently added a different antidepressant in yet another class to my regimen to help with my centralized pain issues, and it hasn't gone quite as well. It's still early, and it may still work for me. I do need to give it more time, but I'm having a pretty rough go of it. I almost didn't even mention this part, but I decided to include it because new medications are still scary for me too. There's something I'm always going to have a hard time with but it's important to me that you know that I keep trying. This isn't to say that the same approach will work for you. In fact, it probably won't. As with health in general, there are so many factors that go into shaping our response to medication. It's a learning process, and for me, there's been a lot of confusion and failure along the way. Your process will be different because it will be your own. I'm not going to lie to you. It can be scary. It definitely has not solved all of my problems, and sometimes even the right drug will give you a hell of a time in the beginning. But I think your life is worth giving it a try, if you can, and if it's the right time for you. And it may not be, but so many people lose years of their lives because they are afraid to take medication, or because they had a bad experience with one or two drugs and have concluded that they are beyond help, or that they're not bad enough to need treatment, or that if they just eat a super restrictive diet and exercise constantly, they can cure themselves, or that they don't want to take a pill every day. I thought every one of those things at one time or another. 
It's also totally okay if you're not ready, but there are a ton of options waiting for you when you are. So even if your holidays are not merry and bright, I hope you'll hang in there with us. On top of the mental health resources I'll have in the show notes, I'll also include some links to further reading and listening about depression and suicide. I know it really helps me to know that I'm not alone when I'm feeling down, and so I hope it will help you as well. I hope you enjoy this episode and find more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. You can find more from Dior Vargas, including her People of Color with Mental Illness photo project at DiorVargas.com. And I hope your holidays will at least be filled with some naps and coziness, if nothing else. my real like origin story and this can seem kind of like oh I was born you know in New York with uh, my mom and my sister and my maternal grandparents and my dad uh, I remember they separated and he left when I was six we had gone through domestic violence because of him uh, there's also alcoholism I was extremely depressed and uh, I just was very unhappy around eight years old I remember writing in my diary that uh, my life was over and so I had been experiencing suicidal ideation from the ages of 8 to 18, and I acted upon those feelings from 11 to 18. You know, while I had a really uh, loving family, I still felt like I couldn't really talk to them about it. Mm. And my mom was going through a lot, and she was going through her own depression, and so I felt like I didn't want to be a burden to her. I already felt like I was because she was a single parent. Even when I would speak to my biological father about it, he would kind of turn away or not want to engage or change the subject. So when my parents had separated, uh, he was refusing to pay child support. So we were always in family court, and my sister and I had to speak to lawyers for children. So that was like my first introduction into therapy slash social workers. So that was hard, just constantly being questioned about my relationship with him. And I mentioned that because later on, around high school, when I was attempting all the time. I started going to a therapist and uh, and eventually when I went to college, I tried to get more involved in my mental health care. And when I was 18, after my first year of college, that's when I had my last attempt and that's when I was hospitalized and in a psychiatric ward. So for me, that was like, oh, okay, this is not something that I do before I go to sleep and wake up feeling dramatic and feeling like, okay, well, it didn't work this time, I'll try another time. It actually became very real. Mm-hmm. And so when I got back to school, I decided to really be more on top of my mental health, seeing a therapist, uh, taking medication, and that carries a lot of stigma. And because my family was very worried, they were afraid that I would be dependent on it and that I would be on it for the rest of my life. And then some people say that they feel numb or like spaced out. So there's a lot of feelings towards that. Uh, But I just went ahead and did it because I felt like that's what I really needed to take care of myself. And I guess more recently, in 2014, I I got laid off from my job because the publishing industry is just not doing well. And unfortunately, when I lost my job, I lost my health insurance. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go cold turkey off of my medication and therapy. And I still have not gone back on my medication. I just went back to therapy last week. But it's been extremely hard. I really threw myself into my activism and volunteer work, and 
for a while I was just basically saying that this work has been a lifesaver for me. And while a lot of that is true, I've recently come to realize that I can't be some untouchable, you know, unattainable version of recovery that can only depend on helping others and saying, well, I'm helping others and that's why that's going to be my mental health care treatment. And that's that's not how it is. I have to be honest with myself and I have to prioritize my self-care. I preach it, but I don't practice it. I, yep. I, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really trying to get back and, and make sure that I can learn how to navigate the healthcare system. I had Medicaid, but you know, I got a job. So now it's trying to figure out how to navigate another part of that system. And, and so I've been feeling stressed about that and trying not to be so hard on myself and to not let these uh, obstacles stop me from reaching that goal of, okay, I can still do good in the world, but also that doesn't mean that I have to sacrifice my health, my health care mm-hmm. at the same time. So when you had to go cold turkey off of your medication, um, there's a lot of very physical stuff. I mean, depression in and of itself, there's a lot of physical mm-hmm. stuff that comes with that. So I guess my question would be, you know, what does depression look like for you? What does it feel like physically for you? What kind of physical stuff do you experience with it? And then when you had to go cold turkey off of your medication, like what was what did that feel like? Right. So for depression for me uh, is guilt all the time feeling helpless and irritable and probably angry a lot of the time. I also feel like this weird like feeling in my chest is like very heavy, mm-hmm. kind of like the the way your stomach feels like when you haven't eaten. Mm-hmm. It's it's weird like the way that it it feels for me like and a heart hunger. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and that's just how it feels and how and it's really and it's also like having a friend that you can't stand right next to you all the time and you're like I wish I could just walk away from this person they're not who I want to spend my time with but I have no choice and so I just have to learn how to deal with this other version of Dior you know and so that's that's another way I, I think of it you know I always just felt like very tired Last time I checked, and this is an example of how little I've been taking care of myself, I might still have a thyroid condition, <laughs> which has an effect on like that me feeling sure. lazy, me having... Uh, every morning it's hard for me to wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this like weight on me that I, I just... It takes a while for me to do that, to wake up. So, you know, there's that. And then in terms of like when I had to get off of my medication... I'm trying to figure out what it particularly felt like separate from the grief that I had after losing my job because I had just gotten a new apartment and home has always been something that I've tried to come to terms with and view it as a positive way and I felt like I finally had gotten an apartment and I had redecorated it and I was really excited and I was like this is my home and I can go home after work and like this is this is mine. And when I lost my job, I, of course, what you think is, like, how am I going to pay my bills? Am I going to be able to pay my rent or health insurance? So there was a lot of grief, a lot of going through those stages of denial and saying, oh, they're probably just going to call me back because they made a mistake. Um, You know, the anger at, like, why did they do this to me? I was a really good employee. But realizing that it's restructuring, it's it, it didn't really have anything to do with who yeah. I was as an employee. Nothing to do with you at all. Right. Yeah. And then the anger and getting upset at the people who still had jobs. Yeah. And like, why is it that I didn't 
get to stay. And so I can go on and on about, like, those symptoms. Yeah. Um, I think that it was just that and just quadruple. It was just one feeling on top of the other. And so it just was a heightened sense of, of depression. And I've experienced a lot of anxiety since losing my job. And so I'm like, oh, is this a new symptom that I have? Is this a new, like, condition? And so it's it's been very scary and hard and upsetting. And I'm trying to do what I can for myself, even though what that looks like is kind of non-existent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a blog post about how I, you know, physically have been feeling worse than I have in a really long time. And, like, I'm saying, like, I'm doing self-care simply by feeding myself and, yes. like, making sure I'm taking my medication when, like, those things are super important and they're, you know, really the foundation of self-care, but I, I'm not, I've not been doing anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I've been feeling like I have no control in making myself feel any better because I have, like, all these weird, obscure medical conditions that no one knows how to do anything about. Um, and I realized, like, you know, self-care could be a really... And I tell people this all the time, but I don't necessarily, you know, adhere to it for myself, but a a really important piece of self-efficacy and feeling like you do have some control over how you're feeling. So Mm -hmm. I decided to double down, making a recommitment, using moisturizer at the very least, you know, like starting, starting with like one thing every day, very small and trying to like grow it from there. Mm -hmm. Did you get like the brain zaps when you were coming off of your antidepressant. So can you tell me what brain zaps? Yeah. So this, I, when I was in high school, I was on, I think I was on Zoloft or something. And of course I don't react to SSRIs very well. Like they usually do the opposite of what they're supposed to for me. I'm now on a tricyclic antidepressant, which is a whole different class. And it's like, Oh, you mean antidepressants can work. That's interesting. Um, but, you know, the Zoloft was giving me a lot more anxiety and I was a lot more depressed. So I just decided that I was going to stop taking it. And that week happened to be the week that I had to go to band camp um, <laughs> with our high school marching band. And we were at a, um, uh, a university and eating in the university cafeteria. And like all I was eating was French fries for some reason. And I kept feeling these kind of like electrical zaps um, in my head and also like in my whole body, like, I just felt like I was being, like, a little bit electrocuted every once in a while, Um, and I didn't realize that that can actually be a a symptom of SSRI withdrawal, and so I just thought it was, I I thought, you know, you can make a clock out of a potato, because I can conduct electricity, (laughs) (laughs) and maybe I'm just eating too many potatoes, and that's why I'm feeling these weird electric shocks, Mm. Um, and I know that's something that a lot of other people experience when they do uh, go through withdrawal, especially sudden withdrawal from an antidepressant, so I was just curious if that was something that you felt in the process. I was thinking about how I would binge eat a lot um, those couple of weeks after being let go from my job, and I don't know if that's a an actual like side effect or symptom of being off it, or maybe it was just I was just really depressed and right. didn't want to feel depressed. So I said, okay, if I stuff myself and eat and eat and eat, mm-hmm. then I'll have this pain in my stomach, so that'll replace that feeling of depression that I know how it feels, and I hate hate that feeling. So yeah. I, I'm willing to suffer another pain mm-hmm. that's different. In terms of brain stuff, I still feel it today, honestly, and it's something that I'm. Kind of it. It's how do I say it? It's it's sad, and I feel really. I don't know if I feel ashamed. I just feel like, oh God, this really sucks. But 
in terms of like my brain, I feel like like it'll take me a while to get something. Mm-hmm. A lot longer than it used <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> and I'm trying not to get emotional because it's like... No, it's okay. Take your time. Take your time. It's you're losing. You lose a part. It feels like you've lost a part of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it was just weird because, like, I'll read something and I have to read it like so many more times to kind of get an idea of what it is. And so, like, I feel like my brain processes are just delayed. And I'm like, okay, like, what is going on? And there, are other things that I've been feeling that I'm not comfortable saying but it's like things that i'm like oh crap i'm like this is not good like my brain used to not do this and yeah. so like that's that was kind of like an impetus for me to like go back and mm-hmm. go back into therapy and, and try to do something because i just i'm just so angry at like the fact that well i, I mean you're you have a cv that's like a mile and a half long you are a very <laughs> impressive person Um, you know, you went to Smith, you are obviously an extremely intelligent person. And so to not, to feel like you don't have that, that access and control over your brain, you know, for, for someone who's, who is probably very used to achieving things and, you know, like all of this stuff that's, that's, you know, really, uh, you know, here goes my brain now, but, um, you know, I, as somebody who is also very smart and also, you know, quote unquote, high achieving, although I've always been an underachieving high achiever. Yeah, um, I, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when my brain fog gets really hard and over the last few years, as I've like watched my health decline and my brain kind of go with it, it's been really hard. It's, it's really affected my sense of self. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just being really sad and angry about what might have happened with my health in the past year and kind of blaming myself for not prioritizing it as I should have, but also being cognizant of the fact that I didn't have the tools I used to have Mm -hmm. uh, in order to make sure that I prioritize my health care. So, you know, it is what it is, and I'm just going to see what I can do to I don't know, deal with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever that looks like. Yeah. I get a lot of people asking me, you know, because I'm doing the show about chronic illness, do I consider mental illness a chronic illness? And the answer to that to me is, is so obvious. Like, yes, of, of course, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've not only have several of the people that I've talked to so far, like, yes, they have what we think of traditionally as chronic illnesses, but they also have, you know, mental illnesses that come along with it. Um, but major depressive disorder is a chronic illness. And I'm wondering if at any point have you felt like you've gotten to take some time off from it? Or is this something, even when you were on antidepressants, you're doing, you know, ostensibly very well. Did you still feel its presence? Was it still there? It's, it's always been there. Uh, because even when I was on antidepressants, I would go through this mode where it would be like maybe days or like a few weeks where I'd be good. And then... And as my therapist would tell me, like, there, you're going to have your, I don't even know, plateau, or, or basically, like, I'd be fine, and then it would just go down, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter whether or not I had my antidepressants, I just had to learn coping skills and had to practice self-care when those times would would come around where I would feel very depressed, when I would question the need for having to take antidepressants and wondering 
I don't know if this is existential or anything, but it was like, am I really stopping the true me? Am I like covering that? Or should I just not be on antidepressants and just be like, okay, this is who I am and I'm going to just deal with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and just wondering, like, I was like, I remember constantly saying like, okay, I I felt this. I know how it feels. I don't want to feel this anymore. I'm going to have to deal with this with my whole life. And I'm like, shit, like till the day I die, I'm going to be feeling this way. And (laughs) it's, it's, it seems so impossible to ever not feel that way again. Yeah. Ever feel that way. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it's definitely a chronic. Whether or not I think that I'll that I'm okay, it's still there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that I'm not okay. I mean, it's just me having to learn how to live with it. Right. Like that other Dior that's always next to me. That I'm just. I just got to learn how to deal with her because mm-hmm. she's gonna be there, and that's just it is what it is. And so I'm gonna have to learn how to cope. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious in that case. Like, how do you feel about the language? about recovery, you mm-hmm. know, that this is something that you can come back from, get over, and then... Oh, this is not something you can get over, yeah. I feel. I, you just learn how to live with it. I, I was talking about this, like, unattainable version of recovery that, like, I don't want in any way present that to other people mm-hmm. because I know that that's something that people will think, oh, then there's something wrong with me because I didn't... I'm not at this level that she is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very transparent about my struggles. And I've even been tweeting lately how crappy I've been feeling and being very open and honest about that because Mm -hmm. I don't want people to think that I'm, I got it all figured out and that it's gone because it's not. And I still have my really rough days and, you know, recovery is ongoing. And Mm -hmm. it's really up to you how you want to define it. And it's an ongoing process. So it's not like that's recovery. I'm there. Okay. I'm done. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's not what it is at all. Right. Um, You're constantly kind of walking uphill. Yeah. 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 So, you know, if you're sharing this kind of stuff on Twitter, I'm wondering what kind of response you've gotten to that. Has, have people mostly ignored it? Have have people said like, Oh my God, thank you. You Uh, so usually, uh, there are like maybe like three at most responses Mm -hmm. from people that follow me and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll send me a heart emoticon or like, I hope you feel better or I've never gotten anything mean, uh, which I think is good uh, in terms of that. I've gotten a lot of attacks, but (laughs) in regarding to me being uh, vulnerable, I think people have been nice and encouraging. And I I remember tweeting last night, insert painful emotion, but I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm really tired of saying that. Because mm-hmm. I feel like for the past year, I've been kind of, again, pushing my self-care to the side and saying, I feel like complete shit or I'm extremely depressed, but I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So kind of just dismissing that feeling and saying, I'll be fine. It'll be okay. And right. not really tackling those feelings and trying to process them and trying to take care of myself and be kind to myself. So one person said that that was really timely for them. So that was that was nice to, to hear. Yeah. So, I I mean, we don't talk about this stuff because there's so much stigma Mm -hmm. around it. Um, Can you say something about stigma? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because when I talk about stigma, I think about the people who don't like using that word. I've actually not run into that. Why don't people like that word, I guess? So they, I feel like they say that maybe stigma has been overused, um, that it's Only import- because it's fucking everywhere. Right. <laughs> I, they also say that it's important to talk about maybe the positive side of it, and if we keep on talking about stigma, then it won't go away. Uh, other people say that they'd rather use the word discrimination versus stigma. Okay. Uh, so it's funny, like, I'll still use it, free, you know, pretty frequently, but in the back of my mind, I'll always think, oh, people prefer that. Or even when... 
they say mental health versus mental illness. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't like using the word mental illness. Right. But I'll still use it. It, it. I don't know, always in the back of my mind, I just think about how people's perception of that language and its effect yeah. on people and what that means. And, and I think that's me overthinking. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I do think, it's overthinking. It's not right. just simply thinking. <laughs> but yeah, stigma is awful. I hate it. And it really stops people from getting the help that they need. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the main reasons that there is so much stigma about this stuff is that it's all kind of like rooted in fear Mm -hmm. Um, that people spend so much time trying so hard to be okay Mm -hmm. and when confronted with someone who is not okay it is a reminder of just how close to that we all are Mm -hmm. at any given moment Mm -hmm. Um, you know especially if it's someone I think, you know, that you might have known for a long time or something like that, or who it does a really good job of keeping up appearances and, mm-hmm. and you might not have suspected that they struggle with mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they, they go through a big period of time where they're, they're really not doing as well. Um, it can be very jarring for people and people just don't know what to do or how to react and are very freaked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we're trying to portray some semblance of sanity and mm-hmm. having everything that you got it together and that you have everything figured out. Um, but I guess you just have a certain maybe reputation or a certain like persona that you're trying to uphold and you're afraid that if you are vulnerable or show another side of yourself, then people will think of you differently. Um, just thinking back on how I feel like when we want to not air our dirty laundry that it, we're afraid people will think of us as a bad person or someone who is weak. So basically it's where I, I was thinking about if we are open about maybe the children or maybe just me growing up and, and being open about that, that I'd be afraid that people would think that my mother was not an adequate parent mm-hmm. and that they would judge her or just not wanting to shame her. I I think she had been going through enough and I didn't want to be so open about that. And then being afraid of being taken away from her. I mean, you know, just that constant fear and just going back to my feelings about home and not ever feeling safe Mm -hmm. at home and not having a home where I was happy to go back to or where things were okay and that I had like a safe haven. Like I've never had that in my life. And so I'm hoping that I can get that at some point, but I'm kind of going on a tangent no that, that yeah I mean uh, having a safe place is so important mm-hmm. you know having having some sort of stability in your life and mm-hmm. you know I, I think at this point we know a lot about the effects of not having stability um, and, and, and what that what kind of effects that has you know on a child's development mm-hmm. um, and, and not ever being able to feel safe is awful mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. awful um i'm just thinking about and i feel like i'm going on my my guess my regular rant on like mm-hmm. stigma and its effect on people of color that it affects everyone mm-hmm. but like anything i feel like it's going to be different based on the person based on the culture mm-hmm. you know based on different circumstances and it's it's awful because in general i feel like stigma in in any context is so prevalent in communities of color you know mm-hmm. stigma of being an alcoholic or being a, a single mom or abortion or you know there's so many different topics and 
I feel like when it comes to mental health, we seriously do not want to talk about it. We don't want to even allude to it, uh, even in terms of like suicide as well. Like I remember growing up and there was my great, my grandfather's brother who ended his life and it was very much like, oh yeah, he ended his life because this and yeah. And then we would just, that would be the only like mention of it. And it was just like a, a situational life thing that was that they said was the reason that he did that. Yeah. As opposed to like probably a lifelong mental right. health struggle. And, right. Exactly. Yeah. And just these cultures just not wanting to air your dirty laundry and putting things under the rug. I feel like there's a lot of shame because mm-hmm. in, when we admit to these things then we're afraid of what other people are going to think about us. And so, you know, a lot of Latinos don't seek mental health care and just people of color in general just don't feel comfortable going to see someone for that. And there's like this kind of pervasive trope that, you know, therapy is just for white people. Right. Right. Yeah. I grew up being told that mental illness was a white person thing or that therapy was a white person thing that this is funny. Why are you going to a complete stranger to talk about your problems when you have your family with you Mm -hmm. or you have your family that's there for you? Yeah. But when I go to you, I can't talk about it. So where (laughs) do you think I can go? Like, what can I do to to take care of myself? Uh, And I'm curious if, you know, in your community, if uh, like the clergy serves a role in that. I think in terms of my family, I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. I feel like the older people get, the more religious they get in my family. Yeah. I don't that's, know, maybe that's pretty true of most families, <laughs> I think. And I think the only time we really mention like God or the church or anything is like in terms of oh yeah, we gotta we gotta pray this away or you know gotta pray to God. You know, you must have done something or it's, it's some form of like punishment or yeah. There's no like medium way to describe it because it's either you're really crazy and you need to be put away or you have to pray to God and this is like a punishment and you need to kind of just, I don't know. It's, it's really annoying. And it's, uh, I just felt like I couldn't really talk about it. And I think this feeling of being a burden is universal when you're living with a mental illness or any type of mm-hmm. chronic illness, not wanting to be a burden. And so I think that's really prevalent in, in this community as well. I mean, there's a lot of like the strong black woman tropes. There's just a lot of there's dignity in not expressing your feelings and mm-hmm. i think that's really misplaced and unfortunate because i think it should be more of dignity in prioritizing your health care mm-hmm. and your mental health care and so it's just it's harder and i feel like in general or even regardless of stigma communities of color are viewed as less than human i, I remember reading a study that white people thought that black people didn't have the same level of pain. Like they just were like, oh, well, you don't really, what feels like 100% pain is really like 20% pain to you. Study after study has shown that, you know, women and people of color do not get the same pain care Mm -hmm. that white men do. And it's just inhumane. That's just inhumane, you know, and there's like a whole weird climate around pain management right now anyway, but Mm -hmm. that you would prioritize one's suffering over another to me is just despicable. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. there's the idea that we don't suffer as or feel the same type of pain as others do. Or that it doesn't matter as much. Right. So, I mean, why would we want to talk about that and, and risk being judged or being discriminated against for another reason? I mean, I was even just thinking about, like, again, how Latinas have the highest attempted suicide rate. You know, they're just... Reading my mind. 
Yeah. That's the next thing I was going to ask about. Yeah. Just thinking that, like, I feel like I'm a an example of that. And there's so many articles about how middle-aged white men are ending their lives, but there's very, maybe there's been two mm-hmm. articles that I've ever seen that, like, Latinas have the highest attempted suicide rate, but since they don't complete it, then it doesn't really matter. But, like, why is there so much, like, emphasis and attention to middle-aged white men who are ending their lives when there's so many other people who are... Right. suffering and attempting just because they don't complete it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. and so i i think that more attention needs to be given to these individuals i mean even in terms of research when you see research for for mental health they have like oh the multicultural community and you throw everyone into right. one bunch and then the majority of the research is for white people and it's like just constantly being made to feel like you don't matter that mm-hmm. your life is just useless and we're only good for certain things and so that really has an effect on one's mental health so yeah i'm, I'm trying to find a way to word <laughs> this better that's okay no that, that's good so i'm i'm curious about the fact that Latinas have the most, the highest rate of attempted suicide, but not necessarily completion. Um, because uh, others use more lethal methods, so okay. they'll use like a gun versus right. like, I don't know what the availability that is to young Latinas, but I feel like they'll usually do other ways that's less of a risk, I mm-hmm. guess, in the, in the methods that they, they try. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't have to answer this question or you can skirt around it if you want, but you said that you had made several attempts mm-hmm. that kind of culminated in a, in a big one that, that landed you in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and sometimes people who attempt suicide aren't necessarily actually trying to actually die. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I volunteer through crisis text line and, mm-hmm things we usually tell people is that it sounds like you don't want to die, but rather you want the pain to stop. Mm. And so I feel like that's probably what you're alluding to. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like they say, people who like jump off of bridges or other forms, like when it's happening, they regret it and they say, no, I want to live. I want to live. But I feel like they just don't want to feel that pain anymore. And so mm-hmm. they'll do whatever they can to, to stop it. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite podcasts is Paul Gilmartin's Mental Illness Happy Hour. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about how oftentimes people describe suicide as a selfish act. That oh, somebody, I, that. I know, right? Um, but the way that he looks at it, and I think that this is so appropriate is that like you know if somebody jumped out of of a burning building would you say that person is selfish Mm -hmm. because all they're trying to do is not burn to death you know Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily being selfish they're you know it's actually in the interest of Mm self-preservation in a lot of ways um there's also you know people say like oh they're just doing it as a, a cry for attention, mm-hmm. which I think is very misguided as well. Mm-hmm. You know, while there might be an element of truth to that in that, like, this is a person who is hurting and needs and needs help and doesn't necessarily know how to ask for it or doesn't necessarily believe that there is help available. Um, right. Or if they've asked for help and they haven't gotten it, they think, OK, well, this is another way that maybe I'll get the the care that I need because it seems more final. It's kind of like a last resort type thing where it's mm-hmm. like, well, look, this is what I did. So now you are going to want to. I felt like when I attempted and when I was hospitalized, that's when my family realized, OK, this is not a joke. And mm-hmm. so it's unfortunate that people have to go to these lengths in order for others to 
finally pay attention. So I, I think that's another yeah. way. Yeah, for sure. How has been volunteering with the crisis text line? It's been it's been good. Uh, I think I would be more um, elated when describing it if I hadn't had a really, really rough time doing that last night. I, I dealt with a texter that there were a lot of things I hit really, really close to home and it got serious and it was just very triggering for me and supervisor there was very understanding very kind and asking me how I was taking care of myself so you know there was no doubt that that was something they was worried about or that they really cared about me like I had no doubt about that but again it was just it was just really hard when you're talking to people who are going through a lot of different things and being triggered and and I also volunteer as a uh, co-facilitator for a young adult support group. So I've been using all my time to take care of others. And I slowly realized so many times I wish I was on the other side of the table or on the other end of the line. And it was like, oh, like I'm, I'm happy to be there for that person. But I just wish I was getting help myself so that I could be more present and more helpful. Yeah. So it's been good. Uh, it's It's been a way for me to gain perspective and understanding. I'm trying to just balance my self-care and that at the same time. But I'm, I'm really happy to be doing it and to be there for other people and to validate them and to lend an ear because I feel like people just feel like they're not being heard and they're being silenced and ignored. And so if I can give that to them and be there for them and talk about whatever to make them feel better, I'm more than happy to do so. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your photo project? Sure. So for a while I had been an activist, uh, mainly uh, working on issues regarding body image or reproductive rights or uh, domestic violence. So things that were, were very connected to who I was, but the only thing that I hadn't really talked about was mental health. And I just decided that I, that's something I wanted to tackle because it's something I live with every every day, and I feel like not a lot of people were talking about it. And so I was like, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. How am I going to go about doing this? Um, like, what actions would I take? So I, I started researching and looking online, just Googling mental health, and noticing certain things about the results, and noticing that the image that, images that would come up would be of Caucasian individuals, and going to articles, and there would be lists of historical figures or celebrities who live with mental illness and uh, I think it was good that they were portraying it in a way that was like well look what these people have accomplished despite Mm -hmm. their mental illness which I think is good because it's important to show diverse representations of people's experiences with that but they didn't show diverse in terms of racial or ethnic ways so I I just realized like why are there no people of color in these lists or in these images because if you don't see something you don't think it exists or if you don't see someone that looks like you then you're like okay well this is not an issue so if Mm -hmm. you only see a white person when it comes to mental illness then you're like okay well then there's something wrong with me because I don't I don't know anyone else who's of color who has this so then it would make sense for people to think that it's a white person thing Mm -hmm. or maybe even like a, a privileged thing So I just decided that I wanted to kind of create a photo project, which I think a lot of people have done in terms of... Yeah, I mean, there's there's such a rich history of uh, using art and specifically photography Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, movements to affect social change. You know, we saw it with the AIDS epidemic. It's something that is... Because images are, they get us like in our, in in our most primal way, Mm -hmm. you know, um, representation is so important and, Mm -hmm. and we're only just now starting to see 
diverse representations mm -hmm. of people, you know, in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still, you know, it's like, oh, look, there's a show about an Asian family on. Mm -hmm. Great. But it's still only one show about an Asian family. Right, exactly. You know, um, it still, to me, feels like we're just babies as far as getting mm -hmm. diverse representations of people in media and actually an authentic representations too, mm -hmm. not just, you know, a, a sitcom that is about a, a family of color, but is actually written by a bunch of white people. Right. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. There's, there's definitely been, uh, you're, you're in really good company with yeah. <laughs> other, uh, social change projects that utilize photography as a tool. Right. I, I wanted to humanize it because I feel like a lot of times we're focused on statistics mm -hmm. and that really separates people from, from topics like these. And so when you see someone who looks like you or see a, a human being who, right. who was sharing their story and talking about these things that it's, I feel like you could feel more connected to it. And again, I wanted to create a space and a safe space uh, for people of color where they could be open about these experiences and have an opportunity to be in charge of their own narrative. Because I feel like a lot of times, like you mentioned, it'll be a family about of, of color, but it'll be written by a white person. So it's mm -hmm. always in through the lens of someone else who doesn't understand that experience. So just wanting to allow people to write whatever they wanted on a sign and they could be as explicit as they wanted to or not. Because, again, like I was mentioning earlier, like you don't want another layer of oppression uh, publicly added to you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can understand why people initially didn't want to do it. But when people started to, that was really validating. And I have over 80 submissions right mm -hmm. now. And I've gotten so much great feedback from people. Uh, and while I've been getting tags too, not everyone... Mo it's been mostly uh, Caucasian individuals who have tagged me for my work because they said that it was racist to not include white people. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Because it's ridiculous. Yeah, I... Um, it's funny, but the thing is that there have been Caucasian individuals who have come to me, like white people have come to me and say this project is amazing and provided me so much hope. And I'm like, thank you for acknowledging the merit of this work. It's, yes. it's, it's not invalidating the experiences of white individuals. It's just highlighting those who are largely ignored mm -hmm. and creating a safe space for these individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it's also really important to see that, you know, if this is something that you're going through, other kinds of people are also experiencing it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I understand that a lot of people are in pain and they want to be validated. And I think that we all deserve love and respect and support when we're dealing with a lot of different issues and an illness that really affects our day-to-day -day lives. But it, I was just thinking about, like, The Wiz, like, mm -hmm. last, like the other night. They, they were like, that's so racist, it's yeah. an all-black cast. But I was, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and somebody tweeted a photo of a little... Like, you can see the silhouette of a little girl who's standing, you know, right close to the TV. Uh -huh. And um, it was a shot of Uzo, uh, Uzo Aduba, is that how you pronounce her name? <laughs> and the girl that played Dorothy. And, you know, the, the little girl is obviously uh, African-American, and I just burst into tears. 
yeah. just to see that image and and you know it had a caption of something like representation matters and mm-hmm. um it just was so moving to me and then the next day to see all of these you know news stories about asshole white people being like why are there any white people in the woods yeah just like oh god this was such a, a, a beautiful thing mm-hmm. you had to ruin it yeah yeah yeah, like, we can't have something that's just ours. Mm-hmm. There was a tweet I saw where they said, oh, well, if the show was called Whitish, then everyone would be up in arms. And then the response was, yeah, the show was called Friends and it lasted 10 seasons. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's just like you want to create something for yourself, for yeah. for people like you, and then you're attacked. And it's just, you know, that was another thing that I was going through emotionally as well because I think that that was kind of the start of, of me realizing that I wasn't invincible and that people were going to attack me and say really mean things to me. And I'm coming from a place where I just wanted to help others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you help those that are the most marginalized, you in the end, you help everyone. Like, right. it isn't like I'm just trying to make sure that they get mental health care and the rest of you don't. Like, that's that's not what it is. And it's it's just painful when you're coming from a good place and you're trying to help people and all that people want to do is, is call you names. And mm-hmm. I, fi- I personally find that so frustrating because it's like, okay, if you don't like what I'm doing, do something yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like if instead of tearing down the work of somebody else who's just trying to say like, hey, these people have problems too. Mm-hmm. You know, I I get so frustrated by that and seeing it happen. I've been extremely fortunate. I don't know how much longer this is going to last in that, like, I haven't gotten a whole lot of negative feedback about the podcast. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I've from day one, I've been waiting for it Um, Mm -hmm. just because you see how women are treated on the Internet, regardless of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, if you know. I hope it never comes, but if it does, you know, I'm here. Thanks. Because I've been through it, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's some of the your favorite feedback that you've gotten? Uh, not sarcastically? I, you can answer that question <laughs> however you like. Because I was like, like, what are some of, like, those, like... Yeah, if you if you want to if you want to call out some of the uh, more uh, exquisite examples of assholery, by all means, you can. Um... Nah, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the good things. Okay. Um, I, uh, a lot of people have come to me saying that they finally felt like this was something that they were a part of, that they didn't feel alone, which is the main goal of it, that it really helped them, that for the first time they're talking to their family and friends about their mental illness uh, because this project has given them the courage to do so. Uh, some people who have been part of the project and who haven't have used the the website to show to their family, like, look, look at all these people who are of color. Right, yeah. And to so, actually have a visual representation of that is so powerful. Thank you. And I'm just, I, I just felt so great about that, that I could do that for other people. And yeah, it's just been very validating. And they, I, I think a lot of people are, are being helped by it. Uh, I mean, people say I'm saving lives. I don't know if I am. I'm Again, I'm very self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. I, I can't accept a compliment. I can't, you know. But if it is, then I'm really happy to be doing so. So, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really, um, like, the second I saw it, I was like, oh, I have to talk to this lady. <laughs> because, you know, it's it's just... You know, I want to hear different stories. I want to get an idea of what other people's experiences mm-hmm. are. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, I also wanted to 
show a different representation in terms of experiences because I feel like a lot of times you'll see really like depressing images of uh, or stock images of people with mental illness where they're you know holding their head mm. and they look in so much pain and like it's like this black and white like really like dark looking photos I'm like what about people who like Yes, they may have their hard times, but they're overall living a really great life who have accomplished a lot, and 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 that could be anything, really. Mm-hmm. Like, people have different definitions of success, but, like, just showing that, you know, if you do get diagnosed with a mental illness, it doesn't mean that your life is over and that it's mm-hmm. a death sentence. Like, yeah. So wanting to show diversity in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast also. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to talk to people who are, you know, maybe their their life didn't quite go the way that they had intended, but, mm-hmm. you know, they rerouted and figured out how to do mm-hmm. something else that, that um, you know, fits around their, their health issues. Mm-hmm. So, like, everything is terrible recently, you know, yeah. just current events-wise. It's been, I mean, you know, and it... it this goes back to representation. Everything's always terrible. It's just a matter of whether or not we hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I personally have been very, have been really struggling in the last few weeks um, because even though I can, you know, I don't really watch cable news to begin with and I, I try to avoid it when I can, you know, even though I can kind of like disengage from that, because I am a person on the internet, it's impossible to avoid it altogether. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have any uh, advice or or techniques that you use when uh, what's going on in the world kind of aggravates what's going on inside of you? Um, simply getting off the internet, I would say. Yeah. Um, maybe reading a book, maybe watching something on Netflix and mm-hmm. trying to you know, spend time with family and friends um yeah it can it can be a lot when you just want to unplug uh because everything you see is just terrible mm-hmm. and uh it can be triggering and um just this feeling of helpless helplessness you know really can come over you so you know playing a game like just anything that i think doesn't involve the internet <laughs> um i think can be really helpful and um or you know, if you want to talk to someone and it might be about that specific issue, just sharing that experience of feeling helpless mm-hmm. and being there for another person and, and being supportive of one another, I think could be really helpful too. Um, yeah. And I mean, don't feel like you have to stifle your feelings, you know, and let it out, process it, and then try to do something fun. Yeah, watch a cartoon or something. Yeah. Oh, what was uh, meeting the president like? So I actually did not meet the oh, president. Lame. <laughs> Either way, you got invited to the White House to like be yeah. super impressive. Yeah. Um. It was. Uh, I still can't believe it happened yeah. that I was in the vicinity. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. I. I was really. I was gonna say I was really proud of myself, in the sense that I was able to bring my family there. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was finally making it up to my mom for all the stuff that I had put her through, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and now I tell my family, like, you can't tell me I don't take you anywhere, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was very validating, and it was weird, like, going there and seeing my name, like, under the White House 
what is it, crust or whatever it is, like... Uh, seal. Seal, there yeah. you go. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I just got emotional because I was like, wait, really? I mean, I still feel like... Uh, I feel like I didn't really deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a very honest thing to say because yeah. I think a lot of people would be like, well, I did really great work and, you know, they recognize me for it. And- I, don't, I don't think anyone <laughs> would say that. I think the majority of people would be like, you know, imposter syndrome, right? Right, right. You know, I definitely would be like, oh, I don't or maybe here. maybe a, a, a white man would say that. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Only uh, people that would say that would be a white dude. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really great, and uh, yeah, sometimes I don't really know how to talk about it sometimes because yeah. it just was so it's probably surreal, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I don't even know how to put it into words, but it was just really great, and I. I'm glad I was able to do that for my family. Yeah, and that was for the White House Champions of Change? Yes, uh, it was for the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Mm -hmm. Act. But yeah, so they were just uh, honoring people who have been working on disabilities for a while and just starting out. So, you know, it was uh, Champions of Change for Disability Advocacy Across Generations. And, And I think it was really a good way for me to maybe broaden my scope in terms of acknowledging that mental illness is a disability mm-hmm. and being working on being more accessible to the people that I'm I'm work I'm working to help simply by adding uh image descriptions when I share things on on Facebook on my fa- on my fan page and acknowledging that not everyone has the same capabilities and mm-hmm. to make it more accessible and feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of you when I share this. I want to make sure that even though you can't see the image, that I've described it for you, you could use your screen reader, you can see it. And I feel like it's broadened my scope and, and allowed me to think of things differently. And so mm-hmm. uh, I've really been focused a lot on, on disabilities in general because it was something I wasn't thinking about. And right. I'm really glad that that's given me that perspective. Yeah, that's awesome to get people, you know, in the same room and... Uh, just because there's, when it comes to disabilities, it, there's such a wide range of like, what does that actually mean? And mm-hmm. yet our cultural understanding of what a disabled person is, is so narrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime you can get people with different disabilities in the same place, talking mm-hmm. about stuff, you know, yeah. saying what, what issue, what challenges do you face that I might not face? What are the same challenges that we have and how can we work together to, uh, yeah. make the world a little more accessible? Mm-hmm. Well, Dior, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Uh, it's been really great and yeah. emotional and funny. And <laughs> I hope it wasn't too painful. Oh, no, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. If you're contemplating suicide or worried about someone who might be, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or find other more specific resources linked to in the show notes. You can find more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. You can find more from Dior Vargas, including her People of Color with Mental Illness photo project at diorvargas.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and to each other. Mm-hmm.